in Genesis 11, kind of the transition then to Abraham. Some people, some let's say some liberal scholars would say that this is when the Bible becomes become actual real history. I don't think that, but you can see why they say that. It's because it goes from these stories that are kind of giving it a worldview building scenario, and then it focuses on one man. So I'm not saying it's true, but you can see why they say that, that now we shift to the person of Abraham. And I think the best way to explain that is the what God was doing for, through 1 through 11 is trying to bring this Eden blessing to the world. And the world gave it right back and says, yeah, we don't really care. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the face of the earth. And they said, actually, we'll all bunch up at the Tower of Babel and do the opposite of what you said. So God says, fine, if you don't want me as your God, I'll put you, I'll scatter you, disinherit you, and I'll create a nation out of thin air. A man with not an inch of land and a man with a wife, with no kids, a wife who's barren. Perfect. So he picks Abraham and now the, the goal's the same. And that's how you start to see the whole narrative of scripture is the goal is the same to bring the Eden blessing to the world. But now it's like this funnel that's going through one man at rise of right now, one person. And then eventually one family line that grows into the 12 tribes of Israel. So one nation. So the whole Eden blessing is being poured through one nation when originally it was supposed to be all the nations of the earth were meant to bring this Eden blessing, whether they were wherever they were from. Um, but they just they were disinherited because they didn't want the Lord to be their God. And so now it's the, the mission still going um, to bring land and uh, blessing to the nations, but through Abraham, and you can see that in the promise of, I will bless the nations that bless you, um, all, in you all nations of the world will be blessed. So it's bigger than just personal salvation and your standing with God. It's actually about all the nations being brought into the covenant of Abraham. So then in 12 and 13, we have the first recorded Holy Land tour. Abraham, uh, God takes him and tells him basically to go walk around the whole promised land I'm going to give to you. It's like... Well, that's quite a, it's already a hard walk, very far north and south. Also, it's clearly filled with these local war tribes. So it's not the safest walk in the world. That's not to mention the, the natural hazards of being in the desert for 70% of it. So, but he goes through all this Holy Land tour, goes all the way down to Egypt, all the way east, west seas, and God's saying, I'm going to give you this land um, for the, the promise. Now, that is, there's quite a connection, to, I think, to Jesus there of, you know, we see Jesus traveling a lot, um, and he's kind of doing the same thing. He's going throughout the Holy Land, seeing the land that he one day would renew in the new creation. He's kind of doing the same thing, especially in Luke, the whole travelogue. He's going all the way far north-south. I mean, he, when he's a baby, he's gone almost out of the country to Egypt and then brought back in. So he's really traveling everywhere, doing the same thing Abraham did. Um, but what's important about that is, right, that land promise for Abraham... <clears throat> I think the best way to think about that is that that was always supposed to be this, I call it a down payment on the real future promise. Uh, th this tiny strip of land in the Middle East was a promise to Abraham, but the day is coming and we, we're getting closer and closer to when the whole creation will be renewed. Uh, it, it was similar to when Israel came into the promised land, they were all given slash taken plots of land for each family that the Canaanites had previously been using. So now the Canaanites were so kind to get all their land prepared for them. They were then evicted. So now the Israelites can use their plots of land called Nahala. But that was just to their family in an image of the larger promised land of Israel. That, you know, just as our family has this plot of land given to us by God, 
our whole nation has this promised land given to us by God. And then as you read the biblical narrative, especially in Isaiah, you get glimpses of the full plan that would eclipse all this, that the whole creation would be renewed of the physical, real, material earth. We did that in summer, but you know, the, the real physical earth would be renewed, including, you know, the, the promised land. So that's what's important to think about the land promise. And one thing really to point out in these stories coming up, especially the Old Testament, is it looks to us like really clunky writing, but it's, it's really, really good writing. Meaning, uh, you'll have these random stories just interjected right in the middle of two very important stories. And it looks like the writer's like, what on earth is he doing? Uh, for example, 15, 16, 17. You have 15, the establishing of the covenant. 17, the circumcision, the sign of the covenant. But in 16, you have this story of sexual assault where Abram takes his Egyptian slave girl. It's just like, well, who would put that there? Put the two covenant chapters together, put that at the end. But that's their way of drawing attention to what they want you to look at. So always notice that, right? You can do that with and, and the whole book of Leviticus, right? The center is drawing your attention to the Day of Atonement right in the middle. Right? So Genesis is doing the same thing. It'll put these two related stories on either end to force your attention on the middle. And then it wants you to kind of see the flow and pattern of why, uh, why they're all there. So we get 13, um, well, sorry, 12, Abraham's called, and then he's given this blessing, and you got to see Abraham's faith tested here, I think. He's given the blessing of land, and then he's immediately having to go rescue Lot from other warring nation-state war tribes who are caught in a tax revolt in his land that he was supposed to be promised. And it's like if you're given a house and you go open the keys to your house and there's like gang members at war in your home. Like it doesn't really feel like my house very much. It's pretty much what's going on. Abram's promised his land and now all these nation states are fighting with each other over taxes. And he's also promised children and he immediately goes down to, oh, sorry, the land. He's talking about his land and there's a famine in the land. <laughs> so he goes to the land there's a, and there's a famine. He has to go out of the land of Egypt. He's like, wow, some land that this God is giving me. And then he's promised children, not only is his wife barren, but then his wife is taken in Egypt. Granted, he's kind of gave her away. That's a whole other thing of repeating Adam's sin. But she's taken from him, or he forfeits her. So it's like, this is the weirdest story ever. It's like, I mean, it, just seeing Abraham's faith tested throughout this whole thing is really uh, remarkable, I think. But he goes down in chapter 12 to Egypt, comes back up, and then what happens is Abram and Lot will then separate. They just have too much stuff, so they, <laughs> silly Abram, he, he goes, fine. They stand over by the Jordan. He goes, you, uh, you pick a side, and you take that side. It's like, okay, well, if he picks west, that's your land, Abram. So he almost, he almost gambles away his own land, saying, Lot, you pick 50-50. You want east of the Jordan, west of the Jordan. You pick, you'll have it. It's like, west of the Jordan is the promised land. You can't, you can't <laughs> try to put your land up for grabs. Thankfully, Lot picks the east. We don't know what would have happened if he picked the west. So he picks the east. So we're like, whew, okay, the narrative goes on. So Lot goes east, and it says he settled at a place called Sodom. Now, we know about Sodom. The writers are assuming you're already looking forward a little bit. And they give you a bit of a glimpse because they say, now, the people of Sodom were wicked. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, keep reading. You'll figure out what that means. But it, at one, I mean, you see why Lot picks Sodom. It says he saw that it was like Egypt. 
He used his eyes. He looked at Eden, where she saw the fruit that was beautiful. So she took the fruit he saw, Sodom. It looked good to the eye, so it must be good. So he went to Sodom, and turns out it was really, really rotten. There's a, there's a, <laughs> this fruit, if you want to call it that, in Israel. Have you seen a Sodom apple? There's a Sodom apple where it looks, named after Sodom, where it looks like this big, beautiful, ripe fruit. It looks like you could just take it and juice would just flow out of it. And when you open it, there's just open it. There's just this puff of toxic gas that comes out. It's nothing, and it's like literally the physical representation of the Sodom story, where Lot saw that it looked good, and he grabs it and opens it. And it was just death inside. So to understand, though, um, here's Abraham's travels. He goes from Ur, from the Chaldeans. So the narrative is really trying to show you he came out of Babylon. The whole Old Testament narrative squeezed down to a person. He's called out of exile, out of Babylon, to be God's chosen people, similar to Israel in exile. Uh, They're called out by the prophets, you know, foretelling this. They're called out of exile for the Messiah to come. Goes up towards the promised land, goes down to Egypt, comes back into the promised land. I like this little fun interactive map. But to understand this um, Lot and Abram story, you have to understand the concept of the kinsman redeemer. And I know it's a pretty more well-known concept now. And one thing is, though, is it's not about uh, slavery. People always make it about slavery. Well, it's this term for the slave market buying someone back. It's not. Later, it'll be used that sense, but it actually comes first from places such as this. This is a little rendition of an ancient Near Eastern home. This is probably a home similar to what Abraham would have seen. Of course, he didn't have a home. He's kind of a nomad. But in the context of little homes like this, compounds, you know, where your you know, 40, 50 family members live in these tight quarters, taking care of one another, it's pretty well known you'd have a patriarch that takes care of everybody. Now, in that ancient Near Eastern system, basically the patriarch of the family could be a father, but it could be the oldest surviving brother. If the patriarch dies, your older brother's now uh, the patriarch. He's your kinsman, your oldest kinsman now. What basically happens is if someone goes missing, if someone gets taken into slavery, if someone uh, gets sick, if someone runs away on their own will, if someone does what Lot did and goes and finds himself in Sodom, actually what happens, he goes in, in, uh, in chapter 14, there, this is the tax revolt thing I'm talking about. It's a list of a bunch of boring names of kings. They actually have quite funny names in Hebrew. It's like king, bad king, worst king. They're like goofy names almost to show you, oh, and then Melchizedek comes, the righteous king. But they get caught up in a classic ancient Near Eastern tax revolt. Some kings are paying taxes, some weren't. They went to war. Lot gets caught up in the middle of this, and one of the survivors of the battle comes and tells Abram, hey, Lot got taken by these foreign armies. Lot's like, you've got to be kidding me. You know, it's not even that he liked Lot, and probably didn't probably thought he was a bonehead. But the point is, in this context, if you're the patriarch, you are responsible to go redeem your family members, which is to bring them back. It just means bring them back. You can probably see why that was later used of Israel and slavery, because God is their patriarch, bringing them back out of slavery. But this is the first context it came from, from ancient Near Eastern home life, very, very civic life. The the Word is goel, kinsman, redeemer, someone who delivers and rescues, protects and provides for family members. 
This is the whole basis of the Book of Ruth. If you don't know this, the Book of Ruth makes no sense. Everyone just talk. It's just a bunch of people talking to each other, and you don't know why anyone matters. But the point <laughs> is, Ruth and Naomi's male family members have all died. They have no one now, so therefore they lost their land because in that time they were women. They couldn't own land. So the kinsman redeemer, who they thought was Boaz, but Boaz knows, actually, there's someone closer to me, or to you than me, they're responsible to go redeem, protect, provide for Ruth and Naomi, get their land back. So that, that's the context of the whole story. The guy, you know, he doesn't even give it a name because he's an idiot. This is called like John Doe in one translation. This go guy, Mr. Guy, won't take care of Naomi and Ruth. And so Boaz steps in as his Christ figure and redeems Ruth and Naomi, getting their land back, providing for them, protecting them. So that same concept is working here in Genesis 14 where Abram goes to get a lot back. He goes and gets an army of 318 people, uh, and that's in chapter 14, verse 14. Uh, chapter 14, verse 14. Gets 318 people, trained men, pursues these people as far as Dan, which is really far north, and eventually gets a lot back. Now, I'm telling you all that um, because I think that's such a beautiful image of who Christ uh, is. Christ comes not only as a Moses figure, and certainly he comes as a Moses figure, but he comes as an Abraham figure too. And Abraham was meant to be the father of all nations. So on one, on one hand, he's the father of his own clan. And if Lot goes missing, he'll do the exact same thing twice. Actually, he'll go, he'll go again to Sodom and they got to go bail him out again. But if his family member goes missing, Abraham's a good patriarch who goes, and a good kinsman redeemer who goes to get his family member, no matter what dumb situation they've got themselves in. And I think that's an image of what Christ does when he, he comes, but not only as Moses to champion for God and bring us out of slavery, but he comes to get us out of these dumb situations we got ourselves in, even by our own volition. Lot willingly made a bad decision and went down to Sodom where he knew there were wicked men, it says. But he did it anyway. And so Abraham then goes, raises an army of 300 to fight nation states and ends up getting them back. Not because he wanted to, because he had to. Now we know Christ wanted to. But I think that's a good image of, of Christ is this kinsman redeemer for us. I think that's the basis of the, uh, the prodigal son story is the patriarch not approving of his son's decision but going and searching high and low to get him back anyway, doesn't And that's why, he's, that's why he, it's no surprise then that we see Christ going to Sodom places. We looked at going to Caesarea Philippi, where they had massive orgies with goats, right? Not a righteous place. He goes across the Sea of Galilee to the uh, Decapolis. I thought I'd picture that. Yeah. <clears throat> goes across the Sea of Galilee to the Decapolis, where he's met with demon-possessed men, or man, or in Matthew, there's two men. Right, pig farmers who are not even happy for the guy that he was uh, exercised essentially of these demons. Um, this is the, the prodigal son image. Right, I think that's why you see Christ going to all these places, but also why the gospel can be kind of offensive and the person of Christ can be offensive, especially to the Jews of the first century, because they like the idea of a Moses who saves Israel. But a, an Abraham figure, figure who does this to non-Jews, who goes to centurions, who goes outside the bounds of Israel to the Decapolis, who goes up to Caesarea Philippi and preaches to the crowds, that was not something they liked very much. But that, that's just so interesting to me to see Christ 
being Abraham in that way, being this kinsman redeemer. But yeah. yeah, I think the Jews missed the point that it was they were to be a light for all the nations. Mm. You know, certainly a, a story like Jonah would have been, uh, you know, because God didn't send Jonah to Jewish people. You know. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, he but, says, but, yeah. But the story of Abraham, you know, who, who, who is Abram, or they would say Avram, uh, here, he gets his name changed in chapter 17 mm. when, the, when the circumcision covenant happens. Um, he's, you know, he's got to be a pagan idolater. But God, God knows something about his heart, I think, is why he picks him. Hmm. Um, and just picks That's a good him. point. But, but, but he, he, you know, think about this. He leaves Ur, and in chapter, you know, 11, it, it talks about that right at the end of chapter 11, and then um, he gets to Haran or Haran, and and that's where um, it's, you know, he gets this message uh, about the covenant, but but again, backstory, if you read, um, I'll just look at it real quick. This is Stephen in Acts chapter 7, right before they kill him, he gives this big long story, but he, he starts his story, brothers and sisters, listen to me, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. So that's not told to us in Genesis, but Stephen tells us that in Acts, that, that he appeared to him, and I want you to focus on that too, because I think I always read that before, well, the God of glory spoke to our father, Abraham. That's not what it says. And we're going to see over and over about appeared to him. Okay, so, so Stephen tells us that part. And then in chapter 12, verse 7, when he gets into, at uh, Shechem or Shechem, which is between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, that's in... Uh, just north of Jerusalem a little ways, um, the Lord Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, you know, so, so this is about more than speaking to, hmm. this is about appearing. And I think we miss that sometimes because I remember as a kid in Bible class learning, well, you know, that story about nobody can see my face and live, you know, <laughs> with Moses, that deal. But that's not always the case. And here it's appeared and we're gonna have times when people see God and they're like, wow, I saw his face yeah. and I'm alive yeah. and I still lived. So <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's not always the case. All right? So here the appearance was in Ur and then appearance again um, in Shechem or Shechem. And uh, you, you'll start seeing some things like uh, chapter 13, verse 4 there. Uh, Abram called on the name of Yahweh. Um, so we'll, we'll see some more, even chapter 15, and you're going to talk about um, mm -hmm. Melchizedek or Melchizedek or however we want to say that, <laughs> or Melchizedek or Melchizedek. Okay, um, chapter 15, verse 1, this is a new statement. The word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. So this is something he sees. So he has seen before. And then now it's the word. And then we're going to see sometimes it's the messenger. And, and you're going to see some coming up about the angel of Yahweh. But realize that's 
um, a transliteration, the Greek, it's Angelos. Angelos, yeah. Yeah. Um, which, it's kind of like baptizo. They just, instead of actually translating it, they just created a word. <laughs> they created angel as a word. It really means messenger. Or they created a word that means immerse. Or, they, or deacon. I mean, that's another one. They created a word that means servant, you know? And it, it's kind of not helpful, I think, the create a word thing. It's definitely hard to translate. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, but, but the people at the time would have been thinking, oh, yeah, that's the word we use for servant, or that's yeah. what we use for dunking or immersing. You know, uh, so, so sometimes. Well, Christians made up word. That was a slander. Yeah. To be a Christian, people just took it as a yeah, sure. I'll take I'll sure, take that insult a as a as but a proper I, but noun. <laughs> I but I think you know they could see that as well. Okay, you're calling me that, but you're calling me one of the anointed ones. And mm. I get that. We yeah. are. We are. Yeah. Jesus, Jesus, we are anointed. So. So the that's a good transition into one of the weirder stories in the whole Old Testament, right? Just because we're at chapter twelve now, the weird stories don't stop ending. I think, John, your, your prophetic words, I think you said to Andrew, of intentional ambiguity. That will, this will be a story of intentional, this is probably the most intentionally ambiguous story in the whole Old Testament. <laughs> it's probably this one, maybe outside of stuff in Daniel. But it's chap- the end of chapter 14, starting in verse 17. And sometimes people forget this is even uh, in the Bible, but it's the, that figure, Melchizedek. And the, the name, Melech, it's just two words Connected, Melech Zadok. Melech is king. Zadok is righteous, righteousness. <coughs> so he's a king of righteousness. Yeah. And from a city that, instead of two words connected now, he's from Salem, which is a word chopped in half. It's half of Jerusalem. <laughs> so Abram's out at war, gets Lot back, travels all the way south, south from Dan. That's like 150 miles. He's exhausted, I'm sure. Fights a war, walks back. Now he's met, it says, in the Valley of the King which is just east of Jerusalem. Interesting. So now he's at Jerusalem with this man named the Righteous King meets him, who's the king of and priest over Jerusalem, which is like a pre-Israelite Jerusalem. This is the most bizarre. It's like a story that you'd think was made up and put in here. And the the Salem is is peace. Yeah. Okay. It's Shalom, Salem, um, Siloam. You know, all those are different forms of peace, whether mm. it's Hebrew or Arabic yeah. or whatever. Okay, so the Pool of Siloam was about peace. Yerushalayim, it's city of peace, mm. you know. So, yeah. Okay. And King of peace. Mel- so they meet in uh, chapter 14, verse 19, or 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And just in case you thought he was a pagan king, it says, and he, and he was priest of God Most High. Well, we know that language now, the Most High God. He's a priest of Yahweh. It's like the most bizarre story in the most clear expectation of Christ, probably in the Old Testament. I mean, the king of righteousness, who's a king and priest, who brings bread and wine to Abraham. Uh, it's such an interesting story. And so he blesses him, like a prophet. It says, blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. So already we have these images looking forward of the, the, he's being a prophet, right? So that's even more interesting. Now he's prophet, priest, and king. So the promise was 
to inherit this promised land and God made him walk the whole promised land just for this man to prophet to say actually it's all of heaven and earth so you really need to walk the whole promised land because God's going to give you the heaven and earth so possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands Abram gave him a tenth of everything and the king of Sodom said to Abram give me the persons but take the goods for yourself but Abram said to the king of Sodom I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high possessor of heaven and earth that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours lest you say I have made Abram rich so and it kind of just moves on it just keeps going <laughs> the story is like anyway back to what our schedule programming or whatever and you don't hear anything like this until one David is in a very blurry way, he's, David is starting to blur the lines between prophet, priest, and king. Because yes, the way does. the tribes are set up, you can't be prophet, priest, and king. But David is, being a king, putting on the ephod, acting like a priest and a prophet while being king. It gets really, really murky there for a second. And nothing bad happens to him. No, and that was <laughs> forbidden. You remember yeah. with Saul, he got in trouble for that. Yeah. But, but yeah. David is told to do that, actually. Yeah. And he does it. And he's, yeah. But he's foreshadowing Jesus just as um, this king here, Alexadek. Well, some, some scholars will argue, is this really Jesus or not? Well, they're yeah. they're still <laughs> arguing to this day. Well, that comes from Hebrews 7. So, yeah. so I guess you, you get the first glimpse of this again. I mean, such a, you'd think that the narrator would be like, okay, let me explain the situation. But he doesn't. He just moves on. And that is that intentional ambiguity. That is how you read the Hebrew Bible, is that you're really good at this journaling of always just like, well, why is that there? Why did he say that? Why is this story here? And the, the Bible is really good at not answering the question you really want answered so that you stay engaged and then see for a greater fulfillment of it but later on. get more information yeah. in Psalm 110 yeah. and then in Hebrews. And so, so Psalm 110 is this messianic psalm where the Lord is speaking to the Messiah and he says to the Messiah, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So not at the order of Aaron, who they all die, and that was late. No, after the order of Melchizedek, you are a priest forever. So it says to the Messiah, in earlier Psalms, in Psalm 2, he's a king. Now in Psalm 110, he's a priest. Now that is, that is why some Jewish groups of the first century thought there would be two messiahs, a priest and a king messiah. Um, so they're like, well, we can't reconcile him as priest and king. There must be two of them. The, well. You know, is what's going to happen. Yeah, so Hebrews solves that through a really interesting way. Hebrews has a whole section on this. And this is fun because some people forget it's even in there. But in Hebrews, he says, um, chapter 620, he says, where Jesus is gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110. For, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham appointed a te- apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also the king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever." See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. And those descendants of Levi, so those are the priests, the descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment and law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. 
though these are also descended from Abraham. Uh, but this man, who does not who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in another case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say, this is how he solves it, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor, Abraham, when Melchizedek met him. So that's how the writer of Hebrews answers it, saying, well, when Abraham honored Melchizedek and honored him by giving him a tenth of all his spoils in his loins, yet to be born was Levi. So in a derivative sense, Levi also submitted. Before, before the Torah is ever given, instructing us to have priests or a temple, there's no Israel yet. Before Israel even existed, Levi is in Abraham's loins, submitting to a greater priesthood. And he kind of uses this sudden interruption of the story as a typology to say, look at Melchizedek. He has no beginning, no end. He doesn't have a genealogy. We don't know where did he come from, where did he go. We don't know who this guy is. That's kind of like Christ, the eternal priest, pre-existent before Abraham, before Abraham was, I am. He's using that as an image of how Christ can be priest and king. And, and the dilemma, you know, for that to be two is because there can only be one high priest at a time. <laughs> yeah. But, but here, it's a high priest forever. Yeah. But yet Jesus is high priest forever. So are there two? Mm. Are they really the same? Yeah. So... Yeah, so it's just, it's just really cool to me that you know when when Christ is denouncing Jerusalem in the temple for most of the sec- last third of his ministry, once he enters Jerusalem, it's it shouldn't be a surprise then that when Jerusalem and the priests are destroyed in seventy A.D., we're not left without a priesthood. We're actually left with the first priesthood we ever see in the Bible. This is the first time priest ever comes up in the whole Hebrew Bible. So there's a priesthood that eclipses and goes long before Abraham even was, which is kind of the writer of Hebrews then argument for why you don't need to become Jewish to be- believe in Christ, because there's a priesthood that precedes even uh, Abraham himself. Yeah, even the giving of a tenth precedes mm. the law. Yeah. Here it is, way before it's ever commanded. Yeah. Law, well, you made a good point earlier about God saw Abraham's heart, and there's funny points, and this is one of them where that is a Torah command later, both for the kinsman redeemer, that's a command in Leviticus, and to give a tenth of everything to the priesthood later in the law. But Abraham's already doing that before the law. So it's almost this image of the law even written on Abraham's heart in a sense. He's like the forerunner of doing it out of the praise for God in his heart as opposed to seeing the letter of the law. Yeah. It, it's yeah, really interesting. Before, it's all about his faith. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we look at his faith, but... You know, just on this call, he goes a long yeah. way and does a lot of things. Now, is he perfect with it? Well, no, he, he messes up sometimes. And the thing with, with Sarah, that's kind of interesting because <laughs> she's like 10 years younger than him. And the first time that he's afraid they're going to kill him for her, she's <laughs> 65 years old. But the second time, she's like 90 years old. I mean, yeah, twi- Sarah must have really been something <laughs> yeah <laughs> but he's worried <laughs> he's going to get killed yeah for her well so. they go down to egypt and they say she's beautiful now beautiful to an ancient near easterner can be she's ripe for marriage but she's older and she oh she could make some really great babies she can so apparently sarah was just physically naturally beautiful so <laughs> abraham's apparently terrified <laughs> yeah it's 
becomes quite a Eden fruit from the tree, but probably not enough time to get in Genesis 15, you think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we have five minutes. Yeah. Six minutes. yeah. Oh, well, one I forgot is as, as Christ, as that kinsman redeemer idea, that's why that idea of Christ as a brother, it's now to us that's, oh, brotherly, we're friendly and we're really intimate. Of course, there's a sense of that. But that brother idea of him as our older brother, the firstborn, is that he is our kinsman redeemer. That's why Christ is our brother, is he's going to provide and take care of us. He'll come to be that redeemer for us. So I forgot about that idea of Christ as, as a brother. But yeah. yeah, the writer of Hebrews won't forget that. <laughs> he, he goes no, on and on about that. Can you speculate more on to our, maybe you know, uh, something about, it, it always seems strange to me that there is this other uh, belief, or there's this other priest. Mm, yeah. You know, it's like, I always, you know, as a kid thought, okay, Abraham's it, you know, that's the way. Yeah. You know, we know Abraham, but, but then all of a sudden there's these other people that, Seems like they must be pleasing to God too. Yeah. So yeah. Does God have multiple things going on? And well, maybe what? there was a maybe there was a whole other good work going on. Yeah. Well, it's kind of almost. What other people? Are well, talking about Melchizedek being Melchizedek, a priest of God Most High, but he's a high yeah. priest of somebody. And yeah. Somebody and appointed him. Yeah. God of Most High. <laughs> right. That's yeah. about it. But yeah. But as as far as we know, all the people from where he's from. Are, there's nothing good about them. Yeah, so maybe it's like, I think a good point is just maybe leftovers from the disinheriting of the nations where, it, you know, there were at least some individuals that wanted to serve the Most High God, but their nation as a whole didn't, so they were disinherited. And this may be a leftover individual from that that, that really did want to serve the Most High God, but his nation was disinherited, unfortunately. And he goes and happens to find Abraham, and he's one of the leftovers. So maybe, I don't well, know. Disinherited, but he's king of Salem, which is yeah, which is pre the Jerusalem we know. Pre Israel, Jerusalem, yeah. Yeah. So the, at that <laughs> point, would you say there's really nothing special? Yeah, I mean, at that, that point, Jerusalem's probably few, like a thousand people, maybe. So it's just yeah. another dirty little small town, but yeah. it says he's a priest of God Most High, and then connects Jesus. This to is how you study the Hebrew Bible. I don't have an answer. You're asking the exact right questions. Christop, yeah, there is one idea that this is a pre-incarnate Christ. Um, there will be another very there's significant. No, like, there's no, he doesn't come from anywhere, yeah. right? There's no historical record. No, exactly. There's no genealogy. So no beginning of days or end of days. Well, and, and he. But, but it says he was a king of something, so. You see, this is the story works. <laughs> I mean, did the people in Jerusalem even really know it? See, the story works. Everyone's confused. And they're like, what is this story? And I don't have an answer because it doesn't give you answers. It's, it's like, not like a vision or a... No, it's, you just hang on to it. And then thousands, many generations of Israelites would have died, got old and died, and got old and died until Psalm 110 was written. And that's the next information they get from God about who this Melchizedek is. And they get one line to the Messiah, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that may mean <laughs> by the decree... Yeah. yeah. By the decree, comma, like it's addressed to him by order of mm. decree. I was looking this up. Oh, but, really? Uh, yeah. Do you high priest forever according to the decree? Yeah. Comma. Melchizedek. Yeah. 
So that's another way that it could be. Um, we don't know. Yeah, and so the, these qu I love yeah. the questions we ask because that's, ex that's the Hebrew Bible working exactly right. And you're, you're so unsettled and you're like, these, we need an answer. But Paul gives answers. Hebrew Bible writers do not give answers a lot of times. It's intentional ambiguity. And you just hang on to it. And you know in the back of your mind now as you're going through all, you're reading through Joshua and Judges and Ruth and Samuel. In the back of your mind, you're like, there was that weird priest one time that before even Abraham was prophet, priest, and king, king of righteousness over a pre-Israelite Jerusalem who gave bread and wine to Father Abraham. And see, the part about, <laughs> you know, without beginning of days or end of days, without genealogy, we yeah. don't get that until Hebrews. I mean, yeah. that's not Jewish stuff. So, that, that's yeah. for us. So, so it, like, is what's he, the whole point of it? Yeah, good question. So the, the, to the writer of Hebrews. Or is he telling us that or? was Jesus without saying that yeah. was Jesus? I, yeah, well, the, know, the know. point of it is at least the writer of Hebrews is his argument is, this may not matter a whole lot to us because we're not first century, we're not Jews at all. We're not part of Israel. And so to us, that doesn't matter that, the, that Jesus was prophet, priest, and king. But to them, it's, you, can't, you, can't just do, you can't disobey the Messiah. You can't disobey God by being a king and a priest. You can't cross those lines. And, and Saul did it and got in trouble. David got close. But his way of resolving it is, hey, guys, look, in this random story, God already wove, he wove in the solution before the problem existed. The solution to the problem before the Torah would become a problem, he already gave us the answer. Where the Torah says priest and king are rather separate, tribe of Benjamin, tribe of Levi. But how can the prophets say he'll be both? But before, the, before Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we already have the answer that there's a priest who pre-exists even Abraham, that Abraham honored. So then that's the Psalm 110. He'll be decreed by Melchizedek. And then that's kind of the, the route Hebrews chases is he, that is an image of Christ, of the pre-existent one without beginning or end before Abraham. Yeah, it's kind of like Romans 4 where his argument is he's justified by faith before there's any law. Before yeah, there's any yeah. Basis, you know? He was justified and credited with righteousness because of yeah. That, yeah. Could it also be um, that it's a foreshadowing of the relationship that God is also for the Gentiles as well as the Jews? Uh, yeah, all this is. All this is like a Gentile, yeah. non-Abraham line high priest coming to. That, that is like shocking. Um, that plus all, what Abraham is doing his job already when the nation states go to war and then one of them comes and says he had a good relationship with him. Abraham's already doing his job having these good relationships with Gentile, non, well, he's the Gentile, but non-Abrahamic non line people groups because he's supposed to be a blessing to the nations and now this guy from the nations is coming to him informing him of his kinsmen, lot. So he's already, all of this is like, so all that to say that the temple and the law uh, the priesthood, the sacrifices, that you'll see that that's all the parentheses. And that's what the Jews of the first century couldn't accept. This is forever. And Jesus goes, yeah, it's really not. Well, how can the priesthood not be forever? Because there's a priest before even Abraham. Because Abraham's before, before the law was given. So that all was just a parentheses ending in 70 AD with the priests being done away with, the temple being done away with. And that's the, now if you want the context of the book of Hebrews, I think he's looking out on the horizon seeing the destruction of the temple, 70 AD, come up pretty close. And he's writing to these Hebrews, saying, which will it be? Are you going to pick Christ? Or are you going to pick the temple? Are you going to pick a temporary priesthood? Or will it be the supreme 
priest after Melchizedek? What is it going to be? But that, yeah. I think that that's a bigger can of worms, but I think it's that larger narrative. That That's kind of, that's Paul's solution in Galatians. That <clears throat> we're not saved by being Jewish. We're saved by sin that even pre-exists Judaism or Israel at all. We're saved in Abraham as our father, the father of all nations. So that's why he don't have to follow Torah. You don't have to... Uh, you know, do all these, you don't have to wear, not wear fabrics of two different types and not eat shellfish because we're not saved into being Jews. We're saved pre existing even Judaism or Israel to Abraham. But the bizarre story, I know. <laughs> is it accurate to consider Abraham Jewish? See, that's why I was like, not really, because that would be, he's not Israel, he's not an Israelite. He's, <laughs> so now, no. <laughs> Can you consider Abraham Jewish? Well, no, he's you not from Israel. Well, now we're parsing words, but Jew, that term really comes <laughs> That's late from too. Judah. Yeah, from yeah. later, from, from the tribe of Judah. Jews aren't even called Jews until Babylonian captivity. Yeah, <laughs> so, so in, in the Hebrew, that word comes from descendant of Eber. Yeah. Or Eber, who lives before. He's not Israelite. He's not an Israelite, but he is yeah, the ch- elected line. Yeah, because his grandson is just a man of God. Yeah, and that's kind of Paul's argument is the Jews thought that this was forever, but he's showing, we arguing from Abraham that once the law comes down in Sinai, this is a, the start of a long parenthesis that ended at the cross in that 70 AD with the temple. And so we're saved into a faith long older than just Israel and Sinai. Um, that is Galatians. That's all Paul's argument in Galatians for why we can eat Jew and Gentiles at a table. Quite the knockdown argument, but... Yeah, but there'll be a lot of other descendants of Abraham that aren't in the line, you know, because there's the Jacob and Esau, and then he, he, after Sarah dies, he marries and has other children, you know, so there's a lot of descendants of Abraham that aren't in the line. The line goes through Isaac and Jacob. Yeah. So, okay, we got this. Um, All right, thank you all. Great.